There is a changing of the show before the show guard at our in our midst. Uh, welcome in, everybody. Episode number 19 of Minor League Baseball's podcast. The final Jake Signer edition of the show. The cat is out of the bag. Jake, why are you leaving us? I am uh, I am sadly, but also excitedly leaving the uh, world of minor league baseball uh, for a promotion to the major leagues to uh, to the Associated Press, where I'll be covering not just baseball, but all of the sports as an editor for their national desk, which means far less minor league baseball. So hopefully put some minor league baseball into the uh, the AP's coverage, kind of slide some of this in there. But uh, this is uh, going to be my last show. It's my last week working on my last column right now. It's uh, it's it's the end. We need that song by the doors right now but with bidding farewell to jake we welcome in our good pal sam dykser who will be filling jake's chair hi sam hi i, I don't know how much filling i can do i, I will attempt I, I will be the other voice i don't know if i'm gonna be able to fill any chairs but, uh... this is the good thing though is like they put me on hosting the podcast with the two smartest guys on our staff and so so i get to just swap out like one genius guy for the other genius guy and then i get to be the heel who's like nah, what about this time that nah, funny uniforms and guys who committed to play college football one time huh now see, I, was, I was gonna say it's, i was gonna tell sam like your job is easy you just let tyler run the show he does all the editing he handles you just show know, up and yeah. you have opinions that's all you have to do and they're always better than they're always more intelligent than mine they're not that's they're the not. thing the not. best part but we are really really gonna miss jake and uh you know at some point somebody will do something ridiculous on a, a minor league field and the ap will cover it and we'll bring jake back on we'll have a throwback edition of the show <laughs> and the three of us will talk about fun things like we talked about through these first 18 episodes so with that episode 19 has arrived and uh we're gonna dive right in to talk about some minor league history that was made last night mike hessman who I'm not going to call the real-life Crash Davis because it marginalizes the, the accomplishments and a contribution of a guy who has done tremendous things throughout his career. Mike Hessman is the new all-time home run king in minor league history. Very cool story. Uh, last night did it with a grand slam, which is there's no cooler way to do that. Um, this is a big accomplishment, and there's you know there's a lot of stuff out there. It's like, oh, this guy's in the minor leagues. You should have had a better career. Should have been in the big leagues. This is a guy who's been paid for almost 20 years to do what he loves, and he's done it better than almost anybody uh, to ever play the game. In terms of power, he's done it better than anybody to ever play minor league baseball. This is really cool, and a big congratulations to Mike Kessman, one of the nice guys in baseball and a very neat accomplishment. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, it just speaks to the longevity. I mean, we all wish we could have the type of longevity and the type of love for the game that he's had. Um, You read any interview you've had with him, the guy just likes coming out every year. And, um, you know, luckily the Tigers have been willing to sign him, you know, put him to Lido where I think he spent most of his or the um, plurality of his minor league career. and, And it allowed him to chase this record. And, you know, I got to talk to him when he tied it. And you could just hear him, you know, how much he does love it and how much, you know, maybe the record does not care to him now. He said, uh, you know, someday I'll be able to sit down and study the history of the game. Right now I'm just trying to, you know, get runs for the team, try to get wins. And, you know, you have to have that dedication. And, uh, you know, certainly our hats are off to him for this. And um, it's it's been nice these past couple of days and today especially to see it get the, the national recognition it deserves. Yeah, and it's it's. I think I've talked to him after games for a, a few of the milestone home runs and other stories around that. He had a a scare with skin skin cancer last year and came back and was healthy after that. And then I talked to him. I think when he hit his 400th, and then when he broke the international league record. And as he's hit all these milestones, he's been pretty uh, pretty uh, stuck in the idea that he he says he's not really thinking about these things. He's going. He's trying to put off thinking about them until he gets to the end of his career. And I was 
kind of happy to see just in the story uh, Kelsey Hennigan did for us last night on Hessman getting the record. He did admit that you know, as he gets close to the American record, this is one that he hasn't really been able to keep out of his mind, and he has thought about this. He says he was more nervous uh, going to tie the home run. Once he tied it, his, the nerves kind of came off, and so hitting the home run last night was a little bit less of a... Uh, you know, didn't have any nerves or anything to overcome with that. And, that, you know, I think the big one for him was just tying the mark and getting there and making sure his name was at least a part of that record. But um, really just a, a total professional through and through. You talk to guys who play with him and, and a great teammate and things like that. And um, always really good with his time with us and, and everything. And, um, you know, like Sam said, just a remarkable achievement and something that, uh, you know, the, the Crash Davis comparisons obviously aren't fair and, and don't quite do him justice. But, um you know, certainly a, a very cool thing and something I'm glad I stuck around with minor league baseball just long enough to uh, to see happen while I was here. And one thing just to throw in there as a request in case this person is listening, um, Jake mentioned Kelsey's story, and the kicker was that, um, you know, the, whoever caught the ball has not yet returned it to Mike. Um, if you could see it in your heart somehow to let the guy get get that yeah, uh, record ball back somehow, um, you know, I'm sure he's willing to trade autographs, bats, anything like that to make it happen, but... Uh, yeah, let's get it on his mantle where it belongs. That is a great point. And, uh, you know, I think Sam really hit the nail on the head, and, and Jake, you too. The fact that, especially in this kind of disposable culture that is minor league baseball, just inherently guys, you know, who don't necessarily perform to what an organization thinks, they don't find a job again. They're cut loose, and they end up selling insurance or doing whatever guys do after their career. But to be somebody like Mike Hessman, who has made a living out of this for so long and been so successful at it for so long, it's impressive in a way that not many other careers are because it's difficult to just stick at this level, continue to be a good organizational guy, continue to be somebody who can come up and, and provide an option off the bench when he has throughout his major league career. Um, the the funny thing is Mike Hessman probably could have done this sooner, but he actually took 2011 and played over in Japan. Um, so he missed an entire affiliated season as well doing that. So it's a really neat accomplishment and uh, a big congratulations to Mike Hessman who put something in the books that uh, you know nobody else has done in minor league history and uh, really, really neat thing. And yeah, like Sam said, if, if you happen to be tuned in and you're the person who found that ball or caught that ball um that's something that he really deserves to have and you know i'm sure they'll make it worth your while and uh that'd be a really cool thing um so with that let's dive into uh three strikes today on episode number 19 of the show before the show podcast and trade deadline is behind us last week wrapped everything up a lot of big deals um some de- i think the market shifted a lot some players who i think everybody expected to be traded were not because of the way that things sort of changed there wasn't quite as big of a run on maybe outfield power bats as we thought there would be but obviously some of those guys changed hands with Jonas Cespedes going uh, to the New York Mets Carlos Gomez going to the Houston Astros but there were some some quirks some curveballs that got thrown in toward the end of that deadline period but guys let's talk about the best return in terms of prospects for teams that made trades at the deadline because there were a lot of big deals and we're here to focus on the minor leaguers who traded hands who do you guys think pulled off the most impressive coup of those deals yeah for me um when we were just kind of formulating what we were going to talk about for the podcast the thing i I really wanted to get to was the uh, david price deal to the blue jays um which was kind of interesting to me just because price you know, maybe he hashes out an extension with Toronto, you know, that, that's down the road a little bit, but essentially it's a rental. And the fact that Detroit was able to get Daniel Norris back, you know, he's, a, he's the number 25 prospect right now on MLB.com's top 100. I mean, that's, that's a major return. And then to throw in two other pitchers in uh, Matt Boyd and Jairo Laborte. I mean, that's, that's a pretty good return in itself. And, uh, you know, we're going to get to this later, but it's a little early to judge these types of things. But, you know, Norris at least got Tigers fans a little excited. 
you know, he, he made his uh, debut for them on the second, seven and one-third innings, only gave up a run, five strikeouts, you know, four hits. Looked really good in getting that bump to the majors. Um, you know, I've, I've been high on Norris since last year. He had that breakout season, climbed, you know, started the year in Dunedin, ended up all the way in Toronto. I think he's a guy who can uh, get a lot of strikeouts at the high level. You know, isn't necessarily going to be a top-of-the-rotation guy, but can be maybe at his height a two or a three. Um, can certainly be somebody who's going to stick as a starter. And to get that for what essentially is just a half year of David Price, I think is a major return. And Boyd has already got some major league experience. He's climbed up a little bit. He really dominated the Eastern League this year before that uh, in New Hampshire. Um, so he could be something, and Labort's a little further down the line. But just Norris in himself to get that big of a name for Price was uh, something that so stuck out to me. Yeah, I thought the, the Tigers in general did a really good job just adding near-ready major league starting pitching depth, which is something that team is going to need just based on, on where they are in addition to the, the David Price deal. They also got uh, Matt Fulmer back from uh, – uh, Michael Fulmer, rather, back from the Mets for Dion Cespedes, which I think is going to be a, a nice deal for them. And Luis Sessa is pretty close to – or Casey Meisner, rather, um, pretty close to, to being able to maybe make an impact, too. Uh, the trade that really stood out to me as being the best for, for the team that was doing the selling, I thought the Brewers did a really good job getting a nice return for Carlos Gomez. Um, I, I liked the, the trade that we heard about with the Mets, with Zach Wheeler and Wilmer Flores. I thought that would have been a pretty good deal, but I actually like what they got for Houston better. Uh, they had to throw Mike Fears into the deal, and Fears certainly has some, some value, and that's a tough thing to give up, but I think they got really... Uh, one thing you want to target when you're moving a, a player like Gomez, who's an impactful player, who's just kind of running out of years of control, is you want to try to get an impact talent back. And I think with Brett Phillips, that's really what Milwaukee did. I think Phillips is a guy who uh, has five-tool potential. He just keeps getting better. He has some of the, the best makeup, the best reviewed makeup in the minors and tools to go along with it. I think he's a guy who is blossoming into maybe a future star. I think he's already rising up to being around the top 20 or so prospects in baseball. And I think that was a really good return, and I like some of the secondary pieces I got with it. Josh Hader's a guy who just keeps getting out to him, especially, especially pitching in Milwaukee and in the NL Central. Uh, I think he's a guy who probably can work in a rotation there and do so pretty soon. Uh, Domingo Santana, I think I might be a little higher on than some of the industry at this point, just because I have some faith in, in the age. The fact that he's done just what he's done at age 22, I think, is something that gets sold short a little bit. I think some of the you know, there's some scouting knocks, and, and certainly the approach isn't there, but I think there's a lot of time for him to improve, and certainly has... We've seen guys, you know, he's not totally dissimilar from what we saw with guys like Nelson Cruz early in their careers, and it might take a while for Santana, but I think the talent is enough where uh, certainly you're, you're taking a gamble on a guy like that in a return for Gomez, but I think as a secondary piece was a nice pickup, and Adrian Hauser, probably a guy who's going to pitch in the bigs in, in a bullpen somewhere. Um, so I really like that deal for, for Milwaukee. I thought they did a good job of getting a, a few different assets, but making sure they got one really, really strong one in Phillips, who I think is going to be, uh, you know, probably, possibly a future face for that franchise. I think you guys really uh, touched on the two biggest ones. We're going to discuss kind of on its own merits the giant Cole Hamels trade to send him to the Rangers in exchange for a host of really, really good prospects. Um, I think one of the other deals that flies a little bit under the radar is uh, the fact that the, the Kansas City Royals have given up a pretty fair amount so far um, to try to repeat what they did last year. I mean, obviously, they've had a lot of success so far this season, but try to make it back to the World Series. But when you look at the 2014 first round, of the MLB draft, 
Uh, a lot of those guys are gone already, and Brandon Finnegan was one of them. We saw the way that he rocketed to the major leagues uh, last year as part of that bullpen attack for the Royals, and now is gone. He's a member of the Cincinnati Reds organization as part of the Johnny Cueto deal. Uh, I like what the Reds were able to get back in kind of one of the more under-the-radar trades in Finnegan and John Lamb and Cody Reed. But Finnegan's been traded. Um, the, the Royals have marketed a lot of that success that they've had in player development now, I think, as a way to acquire some major league talent. But it's interesting to see the amount of guys who have already been dealt out of that first year, uh, that first round of last year's draft. Uh, not just Finnegan, but uh, obviously Jeff Hoffman was traded in the Troy Tulowitzki deal. Rob Kaminsky's a guy who gets dealt. So that's one of the funny things now is you're seeing major league teams. Trey Turner was, you know, a couple months ago now, but was a first round pick from last year. Those guys are coming out with such high ceilings and such fast paths to the major leagues. That's fascinating now where five, 10 years ago, you didn't really see that where guys who were a year out of the draft are already trade chips. Um, but that's one of the ones that kind of stuck out to me as well. So, uh, and we'll talk, like I said, a little bit more about the, the Cole Hamels trade to Texas in exchange for a lot of prospects on its own uh, a little bit later on in the show um guys what who surprised you the most there were a handful of deals that i think raised some eyebrows but in terms of what teams got in return for talent they exchanged what was the biggest surprise for you for strike two uh, of these deals made at the deadline yeah the one that when it happened kind of made me do maybe a double or even triple take was the uh, brandon moss for rob kaminsky trade that you kind of touched on rob kaminsky going to the indians uh, Brandon Moss going to the Cardinals to kind of help out their offense a little bit, give them a little bit of an extra punch. Um, you know, Moss just hasn't had quite the season that he did last year. He was an all-star last year with the A's, moves to the Indians this year, um, not not hitting as well, and yet somehow, you know, the Indians are able to turn that into a top 100 prospect. Right now, Kaminsky's number 88 in, in uh, all of baseball, according to MLB.com. He's got a, you know, plus fastball a little bit more – above average on that one. His curveball is his best pitch. Um, sometimes he leans a little bit too much on it, but he, it's definitely a plus pitch. It's given a 65 grade. He's only been at the Florida State League, but he's handled himself really well down there. He's got a 2.09 ERA. He's holding opposing batters to a 228 average. Um, you, you, for somebody like Moss, who's having a down year, you don't expect to get somebody with a ceiling like Kaminsky, who's got you know mid-rotation, definitely could be an impact guy down the line. Um, you know, the one thing about that trade is that uh, the Cardinals will be able to have one more year of control of Moss. He won't become a free agent until 2017. But like I said, just the way he's kind of been down um, to turn that into that kind of return, um, like, you know, get a, an actual impact guy, I think is uh, was a big move for the Indians. And, you know, with, without that top talent um, with Lindor now, you know, up in the majors, it, Kaminsky's a guy who's kind of risen to the top of their system. Yeah, I think I'm with Sam, actually. That's probably was the most surprising return to me, and I, I don't think it's even necessarily that um, outlandish or anything. I thought it was actually a, a fairly uh, conservative deadline in that regard, where I think a lot of the trades just seemed to make sense. I don't think there was any deals that I saw and thought, oh, I don't really know what that team is thinking, which, um, you know, kudos, I guess, to Major League GMs or, or something for that. Uh, the one other trade that was a little surprising to me is I was impressed just by how much uh, the Tigers were able to get for Jonas Cespedes, getting Michael Fulmer and Luis Ceza couple of guys who could both potentially pitch in a major league rotation. I think Fulmer certainly the more notable prospect, a guy who's really risen up this year, been really, really good with double-A Binghamton, 1.88 ERA, striking out about a batter per inning, um, has the stuff to work in the middle of a rotation. I think one of the uh, lesser-known names, but a guy who's, who's going to be a little more well-known in the next year as far as guys who are moved at, at this deadline, a guy who's 
stock has certainly been up as the years gone on. Uh, and Sessa, just a guy with really, really good command of some kind of fringy average stuff who, you know, those guys surprise you sometimes and I think will find a role in Detroit. But uh, Sespita is a guy who was a free agent at the end of the year and the Tigers weren't even in line to get a compensation pick for him. So they didn't seem to have a whole lot of leverage in making that deal. But, um, you know, kudos to, to the Mets, who I know have been maligned a lot by their own fans just for not being aggressive buyers at the deadline and doing things to help the team. I think that was a a pretty aggressive move on their part, swinging that deal, moving Fulmer for Cespedes, and uh, and something that uh, I think the Tigers that's going to work out pretty well for them. And a nice uh, last trade for Dave Dombrowski, who we're just re- recording this on Tuesday afternoon, and the news we're seeing just broke that Dombrowski's leaving, uh, leaving Detroit, and Alavila taking over as the GM and, and VP. Um, so a, a nice little last deal, that last feather in uh, in Dombrowski's cap before he heads out the door. Guys, strike three today is, uh, I think, one that you can't really talk about enough, and that is the importance of keeping perspective on a lot of these trades. And I think, you know, the example that we kind of talked about in our little, uh, we do some prep sometimes for this show, but the one of the pieces that uh, Sam noted is that everybody kind of already said, well, Jacoby Jones, three-homer game, Tigers win that trade with the Pirates. These trades in Major League Baseball, it's not like trading a proven asset for a proven asset as you see in the NFL with rare trades there in the NBA or whatever. In Major League Baseball, it's so different and it's so much more difficult sometimes to keep that perspective and to hold off on on judging and evaluating trades because the developmental timeline for some of the pieces that come back are so much longer than the proven assets that you're trading away. That's what's so fascinating to me about baseball and the way you build an organization, but it's very difficult, I think, for fan bases, especially of teams that sell off veteran guys popular guys it's difficult to keep that in your mind of like well this could work out it just might not work out for a couple years down the road yeah that was the um you know i I was running the ship kind of on sunday uh when that news broke about jacoby jones and the three homer and it was just amazing looking at the you know milb notifications after i tweeted out breaking jacoby jones hit his third home run and all of them were just pirates fans just saying what did we do what have we done and all this and it's like punt you know pump the brakes literally one game is like as small a sample as you can get <laughs> um you know let's talk about this later and that that was something i did for tool shed this week um you know i think a lot of times we do make winners and looters, losers lists right on july 31st at 401 when we know everything's official and you have to look look back a little bit and even sometimes you know even a year isn't enough you know i, I looked at the martin prado for peter o'brien trade and o'brien you know, he's showing some nice power in Reno in his first year in the D-back system, but uh, you know he hasn't quite made the majors yet, and we can't quite hold that up. And even then, Prado was moved to the Marlins, so you know you can't. It's going to take some time before these guys get flushed out, and whether we know they were good trades or not at the time, we'll have to see. You know, a lot of these clubs are going after a World Series and trying to make just the playoffs. So you know we'll have to see at the end of the season and then a year from now and maybe even five years from now how these are going to all work out. Yeah, I think the one thing that we, we can do at this point is just knowing sort of perceived trade value and trying to evaluate based on right. that. I think trying to evaluate based on results or based on what happens with these players after is I think that's a different process because that's sort of reviewing um, a team's ability to scout internally and externally and to evaluate talent, I think. Um, right now we can sort of evaluate uh, a general manager's ability to evaluate the market. And I thought teams at the deadline did a pretty good job of that. I think, you know, where this stands out, and I'm happy I get to harp on this one more time before I, I bow out. It's the Tuki Toussaint trade between the Braves and, and the D-backs. Just, <laughs> yeah. But the Diamondbacks just completely seeming to misunderstand how much value Tuki Toussaint had on the open market. Even if they didn't think Tuki Toussaint was, you know, much of a prospect anymore, a lot of other people still did. I think they could have gotten a lot more in that deal. I think that's the kind of criticism 
that's fair to, to lay at a, a time like this. And, and quite honestly, I think most of the teams that made moves at the deadline seem to have a pretty good feel for that, and that's not really all that surprising. That's their job to do that. Um, but that's that's the one area where I think fans, if, if you want to find a, a space for some reasonable outrage, I think that's the kind of area where you want to try to do it and understand that that's the kind of thing we can evaluate now, evaluating you know how good of a job a team did of figuring out if this guy a number three starter, is he a number five starter, if he's a bullpen arm, if he's not going to get past AAA. Uh, those kind of evaluations are kind of the things that we can't judge as well right now just because we have less information than teams, and those are things that are going to play out with time. I think that's a really important distinction to make is evaluating what the perceived value is uh, for a proven commodity that's been traded for some future assets versus evaluating performance and results. And that is the most difficult thing about it, especially just kind of in the world that we live in where everything has to have an instant Twitterable evaluation. You can't do that in baseball because of the way that this is structured. Because these guys, I mean, I'm based in Denver. There's a columnist who said this week in a just a scorching take that the only way that the Rockies trade with Troy Tulowitzki going to the Toronto Blue Jays can be considered a success is if Jeff Hoffman wins a hundred games. And just the the level of misunderstanding of the process, A, of what wins mean for a pitcher, but B, of the process of a trade and development and all that kind of stuff is more pronounced in baseball because it's not easy to evaluate. It's not easy to armchair quarterback the way that these trades go down. So keep that in perspective. If you're upset about whoever your team lost, the Cespedes trade, I mean, if you're an A's fan, obviously you're going to be a little bit more adept, I think, at evaluating these things. But, you know, if you're a Tigers fan upset about losing Price or if you're a Rockies fan upset about losing Tulo, uh, or even a Brewers fan that, you know, Carlos Gomez isn't going to be around to bat flip and make everybody angry for loving baseball the way he does. Just keep in mind that it's going to take a while before you figure out, oh, man, Brett Phillips is a hell of a good player or Jeff Hoffman's fun to watch or whatever it is. It's just not as easy. So keep that in mind when you get frustrated with your team. There is a plan for a lot of this. So don't worry going forward. You could still have some pretty exciting days at the ballpark coming up. And and even if Daniel Norris goes and blows out his elbow, that doesn't mean it was a bad trade. But right. 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 That's a right. risk you take. It's kind of how it goes. Um, so it's it's fun if you can instill that sense of patience in yourself. That's one of the most fascinating and the most entertaining things about baseball is the fact that you can't just immediately say this is good because of X and this is bad because of Y. You have to let these things play out. So it's difficult sometimes to do that, but that's what makes baseball so layered and diverse and fun sometimes. And uh, So all is not lost if your team traded away your favorite player, I promise you. Uh, we're going to continue the conversation on these types of moves with maybe the biggest one of the deadline. We'll talk a little bit of Cole Hamels going to Texas and the haul that that netted the Philadelphia Phillies who had one of the most barren systems in minor league baseball. We'll talk about what they got in exchange for their ace and how it may shape their organization going forward next. We were going to discuss uh, one of the biggest trades made at the deadline in three strikes, but it's so big that it really merits its own discussion. And we'll tangent out of this into a discussion that kind of more encapsulates how some systems look now based on how they looked a week or 10 days ago. But this Cole Hamels trade uh, from the Philadelphia Phillies to the Texas Rangers was a very impressive deal made at the deadline. And here, if you missed it, was the haul. The Phillies traded Cole Hamels and Jake Diggman to the Rangers in exchange for 
for Jorge Alfaro, Alec Asher, Jared Eikhoff, Jake Thompson, uh, Matt Harrison, the major league pitcher, and Nick Williams, uh, another one of their ranked prospects. A lot of guys changing hands in this deal. The Phillies were one of those teams that really needed to hit a home run. Uh, an old major league roster that's costing them a lot of money, not a ton of talent in the minor league ranks, but they really reshaped themselves with this deal. Yeah, I think so. There, there are two things that stand out of this that that I think were smart on Philly's part. I think one was the recognition that in order to move Cole Hamels and to get uh, the kind of return that's going to help to turn that franchise around and restock that system in a meaningful way, they needed to pick up some money, and they did that. They picked up millions and millions of dollars on this between uh, you know picking up uh, Harrison and and just covering some money going to Texas. And I think the other thing they did a really good job with this package is it's a very diversified group of players. I think they, they got some relative safety in some of it. I think they certainly got a lot of ceiling. I think they got some guys that are going to be able to fill some different roles. Um, I think in Nick Williams, I think is probably the best player in the steal for me. And I think he's also probably the safest player in the steal. He's a guy who has a profile that seems like it's going to translate pretty well. Um, just as, a, as an outfielder, sort of a fringy center fielder, probably much more of a corner outfielder, but with one of the more advanced bats in the minor leagues. And a bat that has some ceiling on it, too. He has some of the fastest hands in the minors. He's done a really good job of cutting down on the strikeouts this season. His plate approach is taking a step forward. You know, makeup is coming together. The work ethic, everything's kind of paying off. He seems like a guy who's going to hit in some fashion in the major leagues and, and certainly enough to, to warrant at least regular duty in an outfield spot. And I think help the major league team probably starting pretty soon and have a chance to grow a little bit as a player. There's some projections still left with him. He's kind of a skinny, physical guy. Um, so I think they did a good job going for, for safety, making sure they get something that they can, A, show the fans, but also to something that's going to help the major league team there. Alfaro is much more of a high-risk, high-reward sort of thing. He's, he's a guy who you can, you can see the MVP ceiling on, just with the power, with the defensive potential. He has some, one, of, some of, the, one of the strongest arms in the minors. The pop times are, are regularly around 1.8. You can get him even lower than that. Um, really an outstanding talent who's just been inconsistent. He's going to miss the rest of, of this season, supposedly, with an ankle injury. Um, you know, he's missing some time there. Um, but but a guy if he can get on the field and get the reps and, and get the you know meaningful reps and, and get you know somewhere even approaching his ceiling he's going to be a guy that impacts that team and has a, a ways where he can fall short and still make some sort of, of impact and help out and but he's also I mean of all these guys here certainly of the position players he's the most likely to just flame out and never really amount to, to much of anything not that I think that's necessarily going to have I think he's already shown enough to show he's at least going to be a backup quality guy an inconsistent one in the majors. I think that's sort of the floor at this point. Um, then they got three pretty good arms, too, and Jake Thompson is a, a hard-throwing uh, guy in AAA who could help the major league team soon. Same with Jared Eikhoff, to a lesser extent, and Alec Asher is a, you know, another interesting guy, maybe more of a bullpen arm, but who's also pretty close. So I think they, they did a good job of, of diversifying what they got, especially in pairing Alfaro with Williams. I think that was probably my, my favorite part of the package, and um, in general, we'll talk about this a little more later, but I thought Philly has, has done a really impressive job of turning that farm system into something to be reckoned with in a, a very short time. And one of the interesting things for me, kind of looking at it the other side of the coin, um, with big deals like this, you know, you think about who wasn't included in the deal. You know, the Rangers, uh, I know when MLB.com updated its list last week, I think they had seven guys in the top 100, and they got to cling to their top two in Joey Gallo and Nomar Mazzara. Um, you think about Joey Gallo, you know, you think of the 80 plus, you know, 80 power, maybe 85 existed. He might be getting that for a grade. Um, they get to keep him and he's, you know, going to be their future third baseman probably next year. He got a little time, obviously, this year. Um, but they get to keep that their top prospect. They didn't have to give up him. They didn't have to give up Nomar Mazzara, who I think is one of the guys who's climbed a lot this year. Um, he's up to number 17. So these are got 
both top 20 guys that they got to keep and didn't have to give up. I know a lot of the deals, particularly when it came to the Red Sox, you know, every time it, a rumor came up with the Cole Hamels, it was, um, you know, they're going to have to give up a Blake Swire. They're going to have to give up a Mookie Betts, something like that to move the chain. And, and the, you know, don't get me wrong, the Rangers did give up a lot of pieces. I especially like Nick Williams for all the reasons, you know, Jake talked about. We always talk about uh, Nick Williams in the office. It immediately is followed by Nick Williams, fastest hand in the minors. Um, it's almost like a junior or senior attached to his name. But, <laughs> and that, uh, was, that, was, that was Nick Williams doing, by the way. He, he claimed a couple of years ago to, wonder, to, to Robert Emmerich that he, he, he just said, I have the fastest hands in the minors, and I know that. And so I just have to work to use that, which is always the thing that stands out about Williams. I'm sorry, I mean, yeah, no, no, no. The, the, yeah, that, that deserves pointing out. And I mean, he has lived up to that reputation, at least this year. You can see him popping up, and I know a lot of different evaluators have different opinions. He's all over the place. But he, I think the consensus is at least he's a top 100 guy. Um, but yeah, I, you know the Rangers still have a pretty good system after even clearing this out. So, you know, it could have been if you're if you're a uh, Rangers fan and you're a little timid about giving up Williams or Thompson or even Alfaro, um, at least you can be happy that you guys cling to you know the top two guys. That dovetails, I think, very well into a topic that is oftentimes not even really, it kind of relates to what we talked about with making sure to keep perspective on things, but it's really difficult to remake a minor league system in one move in baseball, the way that some teams did this last week. You know, you hear about in the NFL, 60% of rosters change over from one season to another because that's the nature of that game. In baseball, that doesn't happen because it's so structured. It's so rigidly oriented from the draft through the development process and all the way up to the major league level that there are so many moving parts. It's difficult to completely change the arc of your franchise that way. But a lot of these teams that were in the mix last week really reshaped themselves and look pretty drastically different at the minor league level than they did a week or 10 days ago. The Phillies obviously are in that conversation, but who else do you guys see as being among that group? Because the Toronto Blue Jays look very different. The Houston Astros look extremely different. What are some of the teams you think look the most, uh, I guess, improved and some that look like they've drawn back a little bit because of these moves? Yeah, I mean, I think we should start with the Phillies, just because we've already been there. I think beyond even the, the Cole Hamels deal, I think they did a really good job with some of the smaller moves. They got Nick Pavetta from uh, from Washington, and same for Jonathan Papelbon. Uh, they got a couple of nice bullpen arms from Toronto for uh, uh, for Ben Revere. Um, but that those trades, I think, paired with, I think they had a really good draft, getting guys who, I mean, Cordelius Randolph and Scott Kingery, again, a balance of, of high risk and, and some high floor there. And they've had just a, a really good year for the system for the guys that were already there. You think of the guys whose stocks are, are clearly up this season for them. you got Roman Quinn, Franklin Colomb, Ricardo Pinto, Carlos Tochi, Malkin Canelo, Aaron Alfler's having a really, really good year in AAA, Andrew Knapp. I mean, this might be a, a top-ten farm system in the minors right now. If you think about where it was a year ago when we were talking about, you know, when they were looking to move Cliff Lee maybe at the deadline and that obviously didn't work out, that's that's a remarkable turnaround. That's really quick. That's really impressive. And um, you know, I, I think we forget maybe just how good a job Ruben Amaro did at evaluating talent early in his time as, as the GM there and, and getting some of those guys and just the system that's been in place in Philadelphia. That's a really good scouting organization. They've done some really good scouting. They've traded away a lot of really good players, so now they're you know, a lot of younger players in the process of building those championship teams um, and those teams that were contending. I, I think they've rebuilt this really quickly, and they've put themselves in a, a much, much improved position over where they were a year ago. Um, other than that, I know we talked a little bit about the, the Brewers before, and I thought they're a team that did a really good job, and a team that's improved sort of in the same way that the Phillies have, where they did a good job uh, acquiring guys. I thought Brett Phillips was a good acquisition. I like Santana more than some people. They got Zach Davies from the Orioles, who was a nice pickup. 
Um, and they have just guys in the system who are having really good years. Orlando Arcia has been a breakout guy this year. Gilbert Lara is playing really, really well and getting some really good scouting reviews on his defense. Jorge Lopez having a good year. A couple guys they drafted this year, Trent Clark and Demi Oramole, are both having really good starts. I probably just butchered that name, but, but the Canadian uh, outfielder is lighting up rookie ball. And, and some of the, the you know, they've really been aggressive in the draft the last few years with, with uh, position players who have high ceilings and maybe some riskier profiles. And the, a lot of them have a pretty good second half. Some of them struggled a little bit early in the year. Monte Harrison and Jake Gatewood struggled a little bit in, in Wisconsin, but are, uh, got sent down or are doing a little bit better job at, at lower levels. Victor Roach is having an impressive year. Tyron Taylor's showing flashes still um, and, and emerging really as a really good defender who might hit enough. Um, so I think the, the Brewers, certainly we're talking about systems that have improved. I think the, the Phillies and the Brewers are the two big ones. And then you mentioned the Tigers, too. Well, I think Sam might be expanding on a little bit, but I thought they did a really good job, like I said before, of adding pitchers to what they have. Yeah, I, I was going to get on the Tigers there just because they were one of those systems that you looked at it and it just didn't really have a crown jewel, so to speak. I mean, they didn't have a top 100 guy. The closest they had was Stephen Moya, who, you know, you, you can like his power all you want. I think he had 35 homers, you know, mid-30s last year. Um, at Erie, got a call up to the majors for that for September this year. 18 homers in 102 games, but he's still only hitting 241. There's a lot of swing and miss to his game. I don't, there's a lot of people who don't think he's a top 100 prospect, but he was their top prospect in the system just because they didn't have that top guy. Now you add in Daniel Norris, who I said before is a top 25 guy, a real impact guy, somebody who they can actually point to in the future and saying this could be somebody to maybe not lead our rotation, but be a solid piece going forward. Um, the Tiger system really lacked that, and now they have that. And, you know, maybe Michael Fulmer grows into that role, too. I'm higher on him. Um, I, I think last year I had him as a breakout guy, and he kind of had a hard luck year. And um, now we're starting to see what a lot of people thought was coming. Um, and I think he could, you know, eventually be a back-end rotation type of guy. This is just all this stuff that the, that farm system, Matt Boyd, same way. Um, this is these are pieces that this system was missing. And, you know, through the price deal, through the Suspedis deal, they were able to add some quality pieces to a system that was lacking. The thing that is so fascinating about this is when you get into these circumstances that franchises can kind of change their pathway. I mean, you know, the Tigers, as we talked about a little bit earlier with Dave Dombrowski gone now, this is a franchise that's going to have a different identity and wagered so much for so long on the big acquisitions, the home runs that you hit with the Jonas Cespedes move uh, with the, uh, you know, the David Price move, this teams that have gone out and been something for a long time now have the option of trying to regear themselves as developmental organizations. Not everybody's going to be the Astros. Not everybody's going to have that luxury of blowing things up, um, sticking behind an administration that really knows the type of talent that they want to draft and develop and bring up. Uh, that is so rare in baseball, but the fact that some of these deals that we've seen seen such a drastic shift and a swing of talent at the minor league level from one system to another, that it's, it's a fascinating process. And so many teams have defined their identity one way that I think now we're starting to see a changing of the guard. And even the way that some of the big spending teams have started to, to look at it, the Boston Red Sox go out and develop a lot of their talent now. Los Angeles Dodgers have a lot of talent in the minor leagues that's on the way up, and they obviously made the, the three-team trade with the, the Braves and the Marlins as well. But that's what's so cool about this stretch every year now in Major League Baseball is that you see franchises maybe start to look at, do we need to do things differently going forward in order to continue to be successful or to start being successful in a way that we haven't been before? 
Hey, can you imagine if, if a decade ago I told you that the trade deadline this year, the New York Yankees would be in first place at the deadline by just by just a couple games, and their big acquisition would be uh, a fringy outfielder in right, and and we're in a clear attempt to hold on to the guys they think are their top prospects because they think their future relies more on them. That's I think one of the. I mean, I guess it's not that surprising because we've seen this sort of shift from the Yankees happening slowly, but I think it sort of feels like the, um, you know, we've reached some sort of peak there. Maybe not even a peak, but we've reached a level there that, uh, uh, you know, maybe we didn't anticipate was coming with them, or certainly it says just where we are in in that process that you're talking about. That the Yankees are feeling like they need to hold on to guys like Luis Severino and, um, you know, Greg Bird and, and Aaron Judge and, you know, Severino now getting his, his major league debut tonight will have happened by, by the time you all are listening to this, so you can, you know, judge me on whether or not this is accurate, but I think Severino's going to pitch pretty well in the majors pretty quickly and, and stick there, but I don't think that's a, a risk we would have seen the Yankees taking 10 years ago, and, and certainly not in, in the Steinbrenner years. And just think about the idea that the most exciting thing in the Bronx this week, that in a week that does include the trade deadline, is a, a young pitcher. I mean, the Yankees yeah. have had trouble developing pitching in recent years, and I think, you know, talking to Yankees fans, we live in New York here, so we're surrounded by it a little bit more. Um, although, you know, the Yankees obviously do have a national presence, but the excitement for Severino coming up, I think, was greater than any trade they could have made. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that's that's just what you're talking about, just the seismic shift some of these organizations are having. That's one of the coolest things about sports is the way that things are continuously evolving because, you know, like you guys said, 10 years ago, that would not have been even in the realm of possibility that that was the big move that a team made, a team like the Yankees, because they did not make a move uh, going toward the trade deadline. And uh, it's, I guess, ironic, and I think um, one of you guys kind of touched on it. It's it's like a pendulum swinging. I think for so long we thought all of these big spending teams are just going to blow everybody else away, $200 million payrolls and the Red Sox and the Yankees and the Dodgers in recent years but now it's all swinging back and it's all coming back toward controllable assets guys you can develop quickly guys who have high ceiling talent you can get to the major leagues at a pretty young age with a little while that you'll have them under team control it's a different era now in the way that organizations choose to build success and i think it's a lot more uh of a thing that fans can get behind because you're able to watch your team get their guys and bring those guys along in a lot of cases. And that's not something that, you know, in the late 90s or the early 2000s, it was a revolving door of big names continuing to go through big markets. And I think the fan experience is very different in that regard, at least in terms of the hardcore baseball fan. The casual fan who just wants to see a team go out and sign a big-name free agent and win with that guy, that's one thing. But if you really want to embrace a team's identity, a lot of that comes from, well, have they brought this guy up? I mean, did I get to see this guy play at my local minor league team and then follow him up to the major leagues that's a really cool thing that major league baseball teams have the chance to connect with their fans on that no other sport really gets and i think that's a, a very neat era that we've entered because of that yeah and we saw that, that this week too obviously the one of the biggest things last week was wilmer flores crying because he was being traded exactly from, from the only organization he's ever known and you know beginning of the year the whole thing with the mets was we need a shortstop we need a shortstop we don't have a shortstop who was wilmer flores and now all of a sudden he's a folk hero here in New York. And I'm, I'm sure shirts are going off the shelves, you know, just because of the way that the team, the organization, the city has embraced him. And he, he's a perfect example of that. Yeah, and I think those are all nice byproducts. But I do think the thing that is driving that in baseball, I think, is more of an appreciation for the value of the cost control guy, even if you are right. a big market team. I mean, one of the top prospects to move at the deadline was Jose Peraza, who went to the Dodgers, who have all of the money. And, and they use that money basically to acquire Peraza in part. Um, so I think that's. 
that's the shift in the result is more that fans just happen to be paying attention to this more. I think maybe in part because teams are paying attention to it a little bit more, but more so I think just because we have the internet. And I think, you know, 15 years ago, if you wanted to follow your team's top prospects, you got the beat writer on the newspaper might occasionally write something and you could subscribe to Baseball America, who frankly not everybody knew about just because it was hard to market Baseball America to baseball audiences, you know, when you didn't have the internet to market them too. Um, so I think, I think it's a, a culmination of things that are kind of coming together and making it a, a market that is certainly more intriguing to fans, but also one that is, I think, more important than ever for uh, the people who, who run these teams. I would agree completely. It's, you know, money's the answer to 99 out of 100 questions. And from the, the front office standpoint, that's the reason why a lot of this happens. But it is really neat for fans to be able to kind of be a part of this uh, to a larger degree than you are in other sports. I mean, in the NFL, you sign a guy to a contract, he gets maybe 30% of that money guaranteed that's all in that deal. He's cut after, you know, three games because he hasn't performed up to your expectations. That's the way it goes. But in baseball, you get a guy out of the draft or you get a guy as an international signee. A guy like Wilmer Flores is a perfect example. You bring a kid into the organization at 16 years old that's his family I mean for the next almost decade of his life that is the family that that kid will have he'll be in the dorms with him in the Dominican be eating meals he'll be taking classes he'll come over here ride buses around Florida or Montana or California or wherever and those guys come up and that's what you have in baseball that you don't have in other sports and that's what has made this so cool um, and you know I mean obviously the main driving force behind it is the minor league baseball podcast the show before the show uh, <laughs> and so you know we could pat ourselves on the back for that because obviously Jake Siner who riding off into the sunset today has been an instrumental force behind all of that so now we know you're just trying to guilt me into staying. It's not going to work. <laughs> Jake, we need you. Sam and I will never be the nice same. Things on the podcast. Yeah. That's, that's got to tip the balance, yeah. right? Oh man, we are uh, we are cooking along in Jake's final edition of the show before the show. And in addition to Mike Hessman's news, we had some other breaking news in the world of minor league baseball. A brand new identity is out there, and uh, as long as he has not capitulated from the sun, we'll catch up with Benjamin Hill, who is still driving around through the southeast uh, on another one of Ben's road trips, and we'll talk uh, some promotions, some road trips, and uh, the newest minor league baseball team's identity with Ben next. <laughs> Heading into this southeastern swing for our good pal Benjamin Hill, we made a lot of jokes about Ben melting to death and all those kinds of things in the southern heat in July and August, but it seems like that's actually on the verge of happening for at least one resident of Ben's car. Welcome back to the show, Ben. How are you? Hey, I'm doing pretty well, and you're right. I'm in Tennessee right now, and it is very hot. I am in a Speedway parking lot, a uh, chain of gas station down here, and there's Actually, as you were introducing me, I was looking out the car window, and there are ice machines, and the company that distributes the ice machine is Miner's Ice. Hey! M-I-N-O-R apostrophe S, Ice. So, I don't know. Minor what a tie-in. Miner's Ice. It's a, it's a very nice tie-in. Miner's Ice. Look them up. Lexington, Tennessee. If we need a uh, ice sponsor for the podcast, <laughs> Miner's Ice of Lexington, Tennessee. They have machines on the Speedway. Um gas station on uh, route 40 all right i like that that seems like a it's a built-in sponsorship for us somebody get somebody get on that let's make a phone call later uh ben was just telling us a minute ago that his phone keeps telling him that it's got to cool off before it like explodes because of the heat but let's talk about this trip so far a little bit ben i got sucked into a vine rabbit hole last night of scrolling through all of your vines to find every night's uh groundbreaking and subversive ballpark joke of the day but the one thing that i've noticed 
is over like the last week, your beard has gone from being impressive to being very mighty. So this trip seems like it has not only been good for watching baseball and eating food, but uh, for beard growth as well. Tell us about the trip so far. Yeah, uh, thanks for noticing my facial hair. I meant to shave before the trip started, and then once I didn't, I just was like, oh, I just I gotta I gotta ride with it now. Um, but yeah, that aside, it's been a good trip so far. It's been a long trip and kind of a disjointed trip. A uh, couple days in some cities, only one day in others. Some off nights on the schedule just because of the way the itinerary worked out. But I've been all over the deep south. Started in New Orleans and uh, saw Zephyr's game uh, last Tuesday night a week ago from today, and then I went to the new ballpark in Biloxi and spent two nights there. Um, one of them was rained out, so but I still got a, plenty of time there to really explore that. wrote a big uh, big piece about that, and that was a really interesting ballpark to visit. And then on to uh, Mobile and Montgomery and the Mississippi Braves, and then last night in Jackson, and I'll be hitting the Nashville Sound new ballpark tomorrow. Yeah, and one, one thing you kind of uh, brought up, how you, you went to Montgomery, and I remember going through – your post on there and you had a just kind of quick trip through there um took a couple pictures but what stood out to me was the park used to be a railroad station how does that kind of function you know today as a ballpark yeah it's really interesting architecturally and so the uh first base side of the stadium that structure uh used to be a train station and even before that that site was a civil war prison so it's kind of bizarre to see a double-A minor league baseball game in the year 2015 and uh, think about the history there of it being a uh, bustling train depot and before they had a Civil War prison. But they did an awesome job incorporating the train station structure into that entire side of the stadium. So if you uh, enter the stadium on the first base side, you go into what used to be the train station waiting room you know, with high ceilings and just kind of a sense of grandeur. And the front offices are up upstairs with a chandelier hanging overhead and, uh, you know, wood paneling. And they, they tried to keep the original structure intact. And even the suites, about half the suites are what they call the historical suites. And they also incorporate the, to the extent possible, the original, uh, you know, woodwork and architecture of the train station. So there's some of the coolest suites I've ever seen in minor league baseball. Um, so overall, a really memorable ballpark in Montgomery. Yeah, there's another park you visited I want to ask you about was in Mobile, uh, the uh, Hank Aaron Park, or Hank Aaron Stadium, rather. Um, an interesting thing, you said there's like a Hank Aaron Museum in there that features the kitchen and some things from Hank Aaron's actual childhood home. Was that like on the premises and they built the stadium around that, or is that something they moved in there? How did that come together, and what did, what did that look like? Well, I will actually, um, on a personal level for me, um, as I've tried to kind of develop this uh, Exploring America through minor league baseball angle, uh, one of the very first road trips I went on with this job was in 2010 to go see the opening of the Hank Aaron Childhood Home and Museum at the Mobile Bay Bears home of Hank Aaron Stadium. And what they did is they literally took the house in Mobile that Hank Aaron grew up in, and they moved it to the grounds of the ballpark, refurbished it, and turned it into a museum. So it's on the ballpark grounds, you know, situated just outside of the ballpark itself. And it's open during the game. You can just walk right into his old house. You know, a video starts playing as soon as you open the door, you know, with Hank Aaron saying, hey, welcome to my home. And then you just kind of walk through this modest house that he grew up in, and it's full of uh, mementos from his, uh, from his career. So it's a pretty unique thing. Um, yeah, five years ago I was at the opening, and they had Willie Mays there, of course Hank Aaron there, Bud Seeley there, Reggie Jackson there, Ozzy Smith there, Bob Feller there, Bruce Suter there. It was uh, the most Hall of Famers I've ever been around. 
and a pretty surreal event for a you know minor league baseball stadium. It's so cool how teams have done that with with certain things, historical venues in their area. I know um, the the Greenville Drive did something similar with Shoeless Joe Jackson's house. They moved that across the street from Fleur Field. So these teams in the South, there's so much of that baseball history that they get to kind of incorporate into the fabric of what they're trying to create in some of these markets. And one of the teams that's going to try to do that in a, a new sense is the Biloxi Shuckers. And Ben, you finally got a chance to go check out MGM Park in Biloxi, which obviously was a little bit delayed opening this season. There was a lot that went into getting that ballpark ready, but those fans have really embraced that team so far. What was the experience like finally getting to take in a Shuckers game? Yeah, so far so good. They didn't open until June 6th because the construction started so late. And uh, I'll tell you, getting to the ballpark itself is a little bit of an adventure, even by foot, which I did just from a nearby hotel. Um, you know, it's an active construction site uh, pretty much all along the perimeter of the stadium. Um, you know, dirt paths and uh, sidewalk barricades and construction vehicles. Um, so you kind of get there and you're like, this place is open for business. You know, it's a little strange. Uh, but there's one uh, fully functioning entrance. And then once you get in, you're like, oh, yeah, hey, it is open for business. And uh, a comparison that's been made a lot, which I think is accurate, is that it's very similar to the Pensacola Blue Wahoo Stadium, a pretty minimalist design. Um, in Biloxi, they have suites where the Blue Wahoos don't. But, you know, an open concourse, but not too many bells and whistles, just kind of placed right there, a great view, plenty of room to move, and really a work in progress because they just opened. And I don't really think you can call that place done probably until, you know, opening day 2016. Yeah, Ben, so you're obviously talking a lot about the, the trip you're on, but we did have some big news in the world of minor league baseball today with a, uh, a new franchise uh, announced and given a name and, and a branding and everything. I wonder if you could give us your thoughts on, on what you know about the, the new Columbia team and, and what you think of uh, the, the logo and everything they picked? Well, one thing I thought was interesting is that this new team in Columbia, you know, the Fireflies, um, they're, they're uh, replacing, relocating Savannah Sand Nats. And I was thinking to myself, how many insect team names are there in minor league baseball in the first place? I mean, I can think of the Salt Lake Bees. Certainly not many. So it's kind of funny for one of the very few insect teams in minor league baseball, the Sand Nats, then to adopt a new insect name in Columbia, the Fireflies. Um, although where Sand Nats are just a nuisance and really don't have positive connotations, you know, I, I like the Fireflies name in that it conjures up, I think, what the team is trying to conjure up, you know, warm summer nights and the bugs kind of splitting about and a kind of romantic sense of uh, the South in the summertime. And, and I like it. It's unique. It's quirky, but it doesn't go too far off the deep end you know, into the total ridiculousness team name-wise that we've seen in other places. You know, we're also going to be welcoming the Hartford Yard Goats in 2016. And I like that name as well, but I think it's good once in a while to see teams pull back from the brink, still do something unique, but keep it a little more conservative than, uh, you know, your Yard Goats and Rubber Ducks of the world. Ben, let me ask you this. There's uh, obviously been such a... Uh, an emphasis on the wacky rebrands in recent years uh, in minor league baseball. And so many of those have gone through Brandios, the the firm that's done, you know, dozens and dozens of rebrands, not just in the minors, but they've done some stuff in the major leagues as well. Uh, but that's not the case with this rebrand for Columbia. Um, it's a, a different firm that the Fireflies go with, Sky Design, um, who partnered with, uh, with the Fireflies to do this. They also did the Fort Wayne Tin Caps years ago. Do you think it's a good thing just in, in terms of, of what you've seen in minor league rebranding. Uh, I know when the Yard Goats identity came out, 
very well loved. Um, but I think some people started to say, you know, the minor leagues are eventually going to get to be the brandiose leagues because at this point, it seems like every major rebrand that we've seen in recent years has been brandiose. Is it a good thing that kind of different studios, different firms are getting involved in this? Maybe again, Studio Simon obviously has done some stuff and now with Sky Design. Do you think it's a positive thing that now we're in possibly, um, you know, going to have some more mix in terms of the way that teams look going forward? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think diversity is good no matter what you know aspect of the industry you're talking about. Um, you know, the, the fact that we've been having this conversation, though, really speaks to just how successful Brandios has been, you know, not just with the logos themselves, but in terms of kind of having a overall philosophy in terms of how you implement the brand all over the ballpark. Um, there's a lot of success stories there. So now I think we're dealing with the backlash a little bit as you deal with the backlash of anything that gets maybe a little too big or a little too popular. So I think that this conversation is being had as a testament to how well they've done. But, yes, I, I think it is a little disconcerting to think if we became a little too homogenous within this industry where it was just wacky, 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 and maybe, you know, ran the risk of, you know, jumping the shark, so to speak, to where people just couldn't take it seriously at all. And, you know, for every reaction, there's an equal and opposite reaction or whatever that scientist said. And I think we're going to see some uh, – some reactions to the brandiose way of doing things by being maybe a little more understated and uh, conservative and not wanting to necessarily, you know, make a splash by first making the fan base angry and then having to show them why actually it's a good name. And you could go on and on. It's a funny thing in the world of minor league baseball branding and names. Fun thing, uh, two fun things. First, about what Ben said, saying jumping the shark just made me think it's only a matter of time before somebody names a team the Jumping Sharks. Second of all, uh, the Fireflies will also have glow-in-the-dark hats, which makes them only the second minor league team currently to have them. The Asheville Tourists have them. The Casper Ghosts used to have them before they moved after the 2011 season. So look forward to that whenever those come out. Benjamin Hill uh, on the road once more throughout uh, the state of Tennessee today. Ben, uh, we'll get you out of here. Tell us what you got coming up the rest of the road trip. Yeah, well, I'll uh, be in uh, Nashville in a couple hours, God willing, and then uh, tomorrow I'll check out the Nashville Sound's new ballpark. So that'll be definitely a memorable ending to this trip, and then I'll come back home to the sweet embrace in New York City and try to write about it as much as I can and then hit the road again at the end of August to New England to wrap up the season. So, uh, you know, hey, it's nonstop. It's minor league baseball, and that's what we're all doing, just pushing through to the end. And you'll ink a sweet endorsement deal with the Miners Ice Company. Yes, they're in uh, Lexington, Tennessee, seven three one nine eight eight three six one. Give them a call for all your Lexington, Tennessee ice-related needs. Ben, thanks, man. Drive safe. All right, thank you. Also, this is Jake Siner's last episode, and I tweeted before the show started, we were just going to do an hour of funeral music and soft sobbing, but we had to do like an actual show. So roast Jake before he leaves, please. Oh, no, I can't roast Jake. I think he's done an excellent <laughs> job on this show and uh, really turned it into the podcasting juggernaut that we all have before us today. Um, I remember when I was a kid, and Mike Schmidt retired, and um, Eagle 106, the radio station I listened to, someone called up and requested Bette Midler's uh, Wind Beneath My Wings, and I cried when that song played, thinking of Mike Schmidt retiring. And I kind of feel like that now again, only this time thinking of Jake Steiner and uh, what he's brought to the podcast and to uh, MILB.com in general. I'm choking up a little bit. That is, that is very nice of you, Ben. Tyler, I do have to ask, what is funeral music? I don't know. <laughs> I don't have any idea. But, like, you know, there's that term funeral. Might be it. Yeah. <laughs>
It's just, that it's just Bette Midler's entire morose catalog of songs. <laughs> Sarah McLaughlin. <laughs> Sarah McLaughlin. We'll play songs that they play in ASPCA commercials. <laughs> not dying. <laughs> ben, we'll drive safe, man. We'll talk to you next week. All right, thanks. Later, guys. Got a brand new endorsement deal with an ice company in Tennessee. Benjamin Hill making things happen on the road. You can follow Ben on Twitter. He is at Ben's Biz. Check out the blog, bensbiz.mlblogs.com, and a lot of good stuff uh, on milb.com as well this week. And uh, that'll do it for episode number 19 of the show before the show and the Jake Signer era. Sam, is he crying yet? He's not, but I Come am. Come on, Jake! Is anything? If my own tears matter, they, they... Jake just looked at me like you're not actually crying. <laughs> We're seasoning this show with Sam's tears. That may or may not be me, I need tears. <laughs> Jake, this, uh, this whole thing would not have been possible without you, man, and it's been an absolute pleasure to do this for a few months with you and work together for uh, a year and a half now, and I uh, could not respect anybody in this job more, and it's been so much fun to get to know you and, uh, and be a part of this show, and, you know, best of luck uh, with the, the big league job, getting your, your promotion um, to the, the major league sporting level, and we'll be, uh, we'll be following along, man. Thanks a ton for everything you've done for this and, uh, and for being an awesome guy to be around for the last year and a half. Oh, thank, thank you, Tyler, for, for holding my hand through my first uh, on-air experience, possibly my last on-air experience. But um, I, I appreciate all the help with, with everything here. And the people who have been listening certainly appreciate you reading and listening and, and being a part of this little universe. It's a, it's a fun place. I'm definitely going to miss it. And don't worry, you're not going to be saddled with just me. We're bringing on another smart person to join the podcast, so you don't have to only listen to me. Sam, super pumped to be working with you. Uh, Sam's got some great stuff up already this week. Uh, the latest Tool Shed column is up, um, which evaluates some stuff kind of along the lines of what we talked about, about withholding judgment on trades, looking back on some stuff from last year. So go check that out. And uh, Sam, could not be more pumped to have you aboard. Yeah, like I, I think I said earlier, you know, I'm, I'm not feeling any – position i'm not filling any chair um i'm just moving in and uh hopefully you know it can at least meet expectations of what jake has laid before me and what you guys have done and uh, i'm excited for the rest of the season we got a lot coming up the rest of the way and uh playoffs coming up and uh, you know more guys to be called up in september so this will be an exciting time for this all kinds of stuff coming up as we get closer to the postseason throughout minor league baseball, and we will talk to you about it for the next handful of weeks uh, as these postseason races continue to heat up and we continue to see some of this top talent graduate to the major leagues, uh, which has been a common theme throughout the year this year and the year of the prospect and the year of Jake Siner on the show before the show. Uh, Jake, for the final time, man, I won't talk to you next week, but I'll talk to you just not on the podcast. Yeah, I'll still be on, on the Twitter and, and whatnot. You can still send me your weekly Bubba Starling updates. Yeah, I'll be sure to do that. You know, Still still not playing quarterback. He's still yet. not going to play quarterback in Nebraska. I don't know how this has happened. This is like three <laughs> years now. It's so weird. Very strange. Uh, you can follow us all on Twitter. Sam Dykstra is at Sam Dykstra, M-I-L-B. Jake is at Jake underscore signer. Moving on up to the Associated Press, so follow Jake there. I'm at Tyler Mon. M-I-L-B is, as you would imagine, at M-I-L-B. You can send us your questions, thoughts, comments, concerns, podcast at M-I-L-B.com. Big thanks to Benjamin Hill, and a big thanks, as always, most of all, to you guys for tuning in, and uh, we'll talk to you next week. 